Remain standing for the final sermon text from 1 Timothy 3. Again, submit yourselves to the Word of God. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own household well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great confidence, boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you to bless the hearing, the preaching of your word today once again. And so be merciful to us by opening our hearts, and unstopping our ears so that we can hear and believe what you have to say to us about your church, about our life together, and about deacons. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. At the beginning of the year, at our meeting Congregational meeting, I believe the first Sunday in February, I said that I was going to be preaching some sermons on the church. And this will be the fourth one now. Last week, I preached on gospel ministry in particular and uh, eldering more generally. Uh, There are a couple more sermons that you can find online on the church. But we need to see this as another sermon in the series on the church. And what I want you to see in these sermons is that God has said more in His Word about the congregation, about the assembly, than we might have thought before. 154 years ago, in 1868, in an article titled, The Good Deacon, Pastor Charles Spurgeon suggested that it might take a better man to be a good deacon than a good pastor. He wrote, we almost think it needs a better man to make a good deacon than a good minister. We who preach the word go first, and this pleases human nature. But grace is needed to make older, wealthier, and often wiser men go second and keep their place Without envy and bickering, thousands do this and are to be honored for it. End quote. Of course, a similar thing could be said of many elders who shepherd and govern behind the scenes, but it's certainly true of productive deacons who quietly go last rather than first and keep their place without envy or bickering, without complaining or whining, without groaning or griping. 
Josh, even though your name didn't make it into the, the sermon title today as Pastor Bobby's did last week, today's message is directed primarily at you, but everyone here should listen in because in my, my charge to Josh will be an exposition of the living and active Word of God, all of which is always profitable for all of God's people. And, and those men in our church who ought to be making themselves ready for diaconal ministry, especially ought to pay attention to Scripture's teaching on the office of deacon. Now, throughout the sermon, I will make some analogies. I'll compare you, Josh, and all deacons, effective deacons, to offensive linemen, to shock absorbers, and to road builders. I was going to work in a a special ops illustration, but that one got cut. Uh, Just know, Josh, that you and Blake are like special ops soldiers who accomplish crucial missions that the rest of the army often never finds out about. I was also pulling from my military background, going to compare you to sergeants, all kinds of good analogies. Well, you'll probably recognize some of the illustrations and subpoints which show up in some of the reading that we gave you on deacons. But the most important comparison I will make is to our Savior, the Spirit-filled deacon, the kind of servant described and envisioned in our passages from Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3, is above all a glorious image of the Lord Jesus. As a deacon, you are uniquely called and commissioned to reflect the servanthood of Christ. It takes a good man, a better man than most, to selflessly serve your elders and your congregation, your church family, with the humility of God, who made himself nothing, Paul says, by taking the form of a servant. Josh, today you're being ordained, commissioned to empty yourself and to take the form of a servant. Your new calling is not a glamorous one. It it doesn't glitter and it certainly lacks gold. In addition to not being compensated financially for your labor, you often won't be thanked. And much of what you will do will go unnoticed. The world would advise you to run from this servile responsibility. And the world, given its assumptions, has a point. The role of deacon promises no prestige. It will rob you of time you could be spending on hobbies, leisure, personal projects, or rest. It will occupy mental space that you might prefer for other purposes. It will require you to take on problems during times when you really feel that you need to be offloading burdens. It's an unspectacular job with no benefits or perks. But it does require sacrifice on your part. In short, you're becoming a particular kind of servant today. And I mean that literally. The word deacon 
as you know, Josh, as most of you probably know, means servant. The Greek word is diakonos, which most often just gets translated as servant in the New Testament. In fact, before we jump into our texts and our outline, I want us to make sure we realize that the word deacon is not only and not even chiefly a title for a church office. Did you know that? The word deacon, diakonos, was in use long before the office of deacon was established. To help us get a feel for how this word functions, I'm going to read you a few passages from the Gospels that use the word diakonos. These are all familiar scriptures, but I'm going to read them with a twist. Every time the word diakonos occurs, I'm going to translate it deacon rather than servant as it usually gets translated. I think you'll see the benefit of this exercise. We'll start with the very first occurrence of diakonos in the New Testament. Matthew 20, 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. Matthew 23, 11, But he who is greatest among you shall be your deacon. Mark 9, 35, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and deacon of all. One more passage, this time from the fourth gospel. And this verse is, is instructive because it uses both the noun and the verb forms of the word deacon. This is once again Jesus speaking, John 12, 26. If anyone deacons me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my deacon will be also. If anyone deacons me, my father will honor him. This verse teaches us that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, means to be a deacon. A servant. But Josh, today we're, we're ordaining you through the laying on of hands to a higher diaconal calling, to a unique form of servanthood. You're entering a church office whose title literally means servant. You're joining Blake, your fellow bond servant and making sure the skeletal system of Christ the King Church is sound so we can function well as a body. You're devoting yourself to the service of building the infrastructure of our congregational life so the elders can devote themselves to word and prayer. If you accept the servant's mantle and serve your Lord and His people faithfully, Jesus says that the Father will honor you, as we just saw in John 12. Paul says that you will be rewarded, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 3. Today's sermon title, well, there, there are two, you may have noticed. Sometimes I change the title midweek after the bulletin's already in, in process of being printed. But the title is The Spirit-Filled Deacon. Either title works. And all three points in the outline contain that phrase, Spirit-filled deacon. You'll also notice that I made a point to use the word spiritual in each point. So the title is the Spirit-filled deacon. The first point is his spiritual work, what the Spirit-filled deacon does. The second point is his spiritual character, what the Spirit-filled deacon is. The third point is his spiritual 
reward, what the Spirit-filled deacon gains. And where am I drawing that language from? Should you, ref- should you worry that your Reformed pastor is becoming a Pentecostal with all this talk of Spirit-filled? No, the Bible says that biblical deacons are Spirit-filled. If you have your Bible open to Acts 6, or if you've got the handout in front of you, look at verse 3 with me. Therefore, brothers... Brethren, pick out from among you, he's talking to the congregation here, seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Down in verse 5, Stephen gets a special mention as being full of the Spirit, but we know from verse 3 that it describes all seven of these men. And if we put verses 3 and 5 together, we must conclude that a biblical deacon is full of faith, full of wisdom, and full of the Spirit of God. Later in this chapter, Stephen is also described as being full of power as he is falsely accused. Spirit-filled faith, wisdom, and power are the requirements as well as the aspirations of a biblical deacon. What this means, Josh, is that your calling, your work as a deacon is fundamentally spiritual. Sometimes the work of the elder is characterized as spiritual, while the the work of deacon is characterized as physical. And this idea, the the idea is that that, elders govern, govern spiritual matters and deacons govern physical matters. But that's a that's a misleading misconception. Both church offices have been appointed to a spiritual ministry to the flock, a ministry that requires the men called to it to be filled with God's Spirit. I'd rather put it this way. The elders have been appointed to the spiritual service of praying and applying the Word, while the deacons have been appointed to the spiritual service of meeting tangible and practical needs. I use the word spiritual service in each description of each office because in Acts 6, both offices are described as being made up of servants or those who serve. Verse 2 says deacons are to serve, in this case, serve tables. As we'll see, the, the crisis was about food. And this means generally that they're called to meet tangible and practical needs in the body. And verse 4 says the shepherds are to devote themselves to the service of the word. That's the word. Ministry is just another word for service. And so the the Greek word translated as ministry in verse 4, ministry of the word, is diakonia from the same word group. So both deacons and elders are servants in the household of God and both offices discharge a spiritual ministry to the people of God. Elders discharge a, here's another way to put it, elders discharge a teaching ministry focused on the intangible needs of the church, while the deacons discharge a practical ministry focused on the tangible needs of the church. And of course, there's overlap. These aren't hard lines of demarcation here. It's about emphasis and focus. The spiritual work of the deacons in Acts 6 provides a model for every deacon to follow. And what, what do you see these seven spirit-filled deacons doing? Well, these three things. First, protecting and promoting the peace of the church. Second, serving and supporting the elders, the shepherds, 
the leaders of the church. And third, spotting and meeting the needs of the church. Let's take them one at a time. First, the Spirit-filled deacon protects and promotes the peace of the church. The whole reason the church in Jerusalem had to appoint the seven deacons in the first place was that the unity of the church had been compromised. The presenting issue was the crisis of administration related to the daily distribution of food to the widows. The Jerusalem church was predominantly made up of Hebrew-speaking Jews, but there were also some Greek-speaking Jews in the congregation, probably those who stayed after Pentecost, who had come from other places in the empire and who spoke different language, not, not Hebrew, but then after Pentecost, they became Christians and joined the Jerusalem church. Most likely scenario here. And the Greek-speaking Jews are referred to as Hellenists in verse 1. That's what that word means. It means a Jew who doesn't speak Hebrew. The problem was that the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. They weren't getting the daily allowance of food that the church was distributing. This was a crisis not only because the Greek-speaking widows needed to eat, but also... And we might even say, and more importantly, because the only supernatural institution on earth was splitting apart along the natural fault lines of ethnicity and nationality. The Spirit was giving way to the flesh. The church of God was beginning to function like the kingdoms of the world. In response, the elders and the apostles told the congregation to nominate men full of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. These men were appointed, ordained, and commissioned to implement systems that would restore peace to the first congregation in church history, the flagship congregation. These deacons had to build administrative roads that would enable people and resources to get where they needed to go. But these seven couldn't do it by themselves. They couldn't build and maintain the ecclesiastical road system by themselves. They had to recruit and mobilize and delegate and organize and train and supervise. The church was already, remember, in the thousands at this point. Seven doesn't doesn't seem like very many. So the seven had to empower other members with responsibility, direction, and vision. In summary, they had to develop a substructure within the congregation that would meet a tangible need and resolve a spiritual crisis. The peace-preserving, unity-building role of deacons resembles the function of a shock absorber. Deacon expert Matt Smethurst puts it this way. Given the root problem facing the seven, we can conclude that deacons should be those who muffle shockwaves, not make them reverberate further. Quarrelsome persons make poor deacons, for they only compound the kind of headaches that deacons are meant to relieve. The best deacons, therefore, are far more than business managers or handymen. They are persons with fine-tuned conflict radars. They love solutions more than drama, and they rise to respond in creatively constructive ways to promote the harmony of the whole. 
That's what these seven were called to do. Josh, a biblical deacon, is a unity builder. The elders at Christ the King Church need you to develop and employ your gifts of administration and delegation and organization and mobilization and problem solving so you can effectively protect and promote the peace of this church. We need you to heal divisions and meet practical needs so we can devote ourselves to praying and feeding the Word to the flock. Second, the Spirit-filled deacon serves and supports the elders of the church. <clears throat> That's point, uh, sub-point two there on your outline, I believe. <clears throat> These seven deacons were ordained into service at the behest of the church overseers, at their request, even command. The deacons served, we could say, at the pleasure of the apostles and elders. As their assistants, the Greek word diakonos is best understood by taking our English words servant and assistant and sort of mixing them together. One of the leading experts on elders and deacons, Alexander Strauch, says that in his most recent study on deacons, which really actually transformed and changed his thesis on what a deacon is and does, he says that diakonos denotes the idea of a subordinate carrying out an assignment on a superior's behalf and having full authority to execute the superior's delegated task. So Josh, the elders need your assistance. We're ordaining you to serve and support us so we can devote ourselves to praying and feeding the word to the sheep. Third, the spirit-filled deacon spots and meets the needs of the church. In American football, the offensive line is the backbone of the offense. <clears throat> the linemen are the, the biggest, strongest guys on the team. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and their job is to protect the quarterback and the running backs from the other team's defense or wanting to tackle them, preferably behind the line of scrimmage. Offensive linemen create holes for the running backs to run through. They create pockets of safety for the quarterback to stand in while he passes the ball. Now, in most plays, each offensive lineman knows which defensive player he's supposed to block, stay in front of. His task is regularly, typically, specific. Sometimes, if there's uncertainty about what his assignment is, the quarterback will clarify it for him before the play begins. But sometimes the lineman just has to use common sense and see what needs to be done as the play develops because defenses are not always predictable. They don't always do what they tell you that they are going to do. Right? They're trying to trick the offense. Sometimes they blitz the quarterback. Or sometimes they pretend to blitz the quarterback. And the offensive linemen have to adjust. Sometimes they have more guys to block than there are linemen. Becoming an effective offensive lineman requires wisdom that only comes with experience. A lot of snaps of the football. Deacons are like offensive linemen. They create holes 
for the elders and the congregation to run through. They create pockets for gospel ministers to stand in while they study and preach the word without being dragged down or sacked in the backfield. They protect the elders from being blitzed by, by practical concerns. A congregation can only move the ball down the field if it has a wall of deacons grinding it out on the front lines and not getting any recognition for it, typically. How many linemen are interviewed on TV, on the radio after a football game? Like offensive linemen, deacons seldom get any credit, even though their work is critical in guarding and advancing gospel ministry. Without effective deacons, the shepherds will constantly be distracted from their job of praying Scripture, studying Scripture, teaching Scripture, applying Scripture to the sheep. Again, Matt Smethurst summarizes it this way. Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission, and I will show you a church without effective deacons. Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission, and I will show you a church without effective deacons. Josh, we need you to keep us from getting distracted. We've seen that diaconal work forms the backbone of every healthy, effective church. This is universally true. Let's consider now that godly character forms the backbone of every effective deacon. It's of utmost importance that Paul, in the only place he teaches on deacons, in Philippians he mentions deacons in passing but doesn't teach on it, the only place he teaches on deacons, he doesn't list a set of physical or financial skills, something like that. Practical knowledge and, and skills. He doesn't say that deacons either need to be good with their hands or able to use Microsoft Excel. No, instead of, of a skill set, Paul gives what? A character sketch. Not a skill set, but a character sketch. And this is instructive for us, congregation, as we appoint men to the diaconate in the coming years. And we do need more men serving as deacons in our body. This is also instructive for you, Josh, as you contemplate the core requirement of being a deacon. First and foremost, being a deacon means being a man of God, a man of character, a man full of the Spirit. Our Lord wants His church to be led and served by men who, above all, are exemplary in character. So, Josh, you are to be diligent, it says. Another acceptable translation would be respectable. The character of a biblical deacon must earn him the esteem and respect of his colleagues, his family, his church, fellow church members. A man unworthy of respect is unworthy of the office of deacon. 
you are not to be double-tongued. A double-tongued person talks out of both sides of his mouth. He says one thing in, in one context and something quite different, different in another setting because that's what he needs to do to create the desired perception. He uses his tongue to manipulate, control, and leverage rather than to speak the truth and build trust and glorify God who sees all. Paul says that deacons must not be two-faced or two-tongued. And so, Josh, your words must be full of sincerity and empty of guile. You also must not be addicted to much wine. The issue with a man who runs to the bottle is twofold. He lacks self-control and he lacks dependence on God. He is undisciplined and he is unsatisfied with God. A man cannot be spirit-filled and alcohol-filled at the same time. In another place, Paul says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The next character requirement is that you must not be greedy for money or dishonest gain. Diaconal service calls for a generous spirit, an open hand, which cannot exist with a greedy heart, coexist with a greedy heart. You must be sound in doctrine and in life. Verse 9 says you must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a perfect description of Stephen in Acts 6, who spoke to the Jewish council with wisdom, faith, and power being full of the Holy Spirit. See, Stephen had so clear of a conscience that he was able to call the council, the leaders in Jerusalem, to account. He called them to account. And at the same time, he maintained Christ-like composure, even in the face of death by stoning. This was because both his life and his doctrine were sound. A deacon must know the faith so that he can hold the faith. You can't hold it if you don't know it. You must be blameless. Verse 10 says, Let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This one's intimidating, isn't it? Is there any among us who are truly blameless? Well, this is a general term that refers to to a person's overall character. This verse also points, by the way, congregation, to the need, the responsibility, the duty to test deacon candidates. Before a deacon is appointed, the congregation must investigate his background, examine his reputation, and determine his theological commitments and understanding. Is he morally, spiritually, and doctrinally Qualified? Does he have a track record of loving and serving the bride of Christ? Deacons don't begin serving on the day of their ordination. The next two qualifications in Paul's list have to do with the bride of the deacon. Anna, Paul says in verse 11, 
that Josh must have a godly wife. You, like Josh, it says, must be dignified, not a slanderer, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That word dignified is the same word used for Josh earlier. You must also be worthy of respect. You must never be found using your tongue for slander or gossip. The the call to sober-mindedness means that you must be able to exercise good and wise judgment in all things. And you must not get involved with people or activities that that will injure your sober mind. Everything you do must be characterized by faithfulness to the Lord. And Josh, you must be a faithful husband. Husband of one wife is a debated phrase with a variety of interpretations. Some believe it requires deacons to have a wife. Others say it forbids multiple wives, polygamy. Still others say it forbids deacons from being divorced and remarried. But if Paul had wanted to address any of these important issues, he could have worded it differently and more clearly. Actually, Paul has in mind something deeper and more difficult to determine and something more in line with the other qualifications. You see, it's easy to determine if a man doesn't have a wife at all, or if he's got multiple wives, or if he's been divorced and remarried. Those are objective realities, right? And that's why it's unlikely that Paul has any of these things in mind. Important though those questions are. All the other qualifications for elders and deacons point to the subjective character qualities that are determined by the people of God through careful thought, discernment, observation, and evaluation. And I think the same is true here with this qualification. What Paul's saying is that a deacon who is married, and I don't think he's saying here that deacons have to be married, but a deacon who is married, and that's most, most men in this culture, in that culture uh, in particular, he must be a one-woman man. That's really what the phrase means, a one-woman man. A man with years of tested faithfulness to his wife. There must be no other woman in his life or in his head or in his heart. No other woman with whom he relates intimately either emotionally or physically. Josh, you're about to be a deacon in the religion whose leader said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is calling you to a high level of integrity and sexual purity. Finally, Josh, you must be a spiritual leader in your home. Verse 12 says a deacon should manage his children and his household well. Unless the gospel of Christ is having its saving and sanctifying effect on your marriage and on your children, unless the Word of God is doing its work in your household, your ministry to this congregation will be mechanical, artificial, forced, frustrated, frustrating, and ineffective. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved brother, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Quoting from Hebrews there. Josh, I'm confident that you will serve well as a deacon and thereby gain a good standing for yourself and also gain great confidence, boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I just read the last verse in that passage and Paul speaks here of the spiritual reward that the spirit-filled deacon gains. Faithful service will earn you respect from those who are also full of faith, wisdom, and the Spirit of God. But in any event, by serving well, you store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Even when the rewards don't seem to be coming on earth. Stephen enjoyed a good standing with God and a good standing with godly men. And he still does. Even while he was being violently murdered by the Jewish leaders, he also experienced his greatest confidence in the faith, his greatest moment of assurance and communion with God during his greatest trial. Do you see how those two things go together for Stephen? Josh, often the most rewarding moments of church work, of church ministry, come in the midst of difficult duty, or at least on the other side of it. The light afflictions that you will inevitably endure in ministry will without a doubt give birth to a greater weight of glory in the life to come. And sometimes God, in His mercy, will reward you in this life with a foretaste of the fullness of joy that awaits you. But perhaps your greatest reward from day to day, from week to week, is observing the increase of God's Word as a result of your ministry from your work as a, an offensive lineman, a shock absorber. What effect did the work of the seven have on the gospel ministry in the Jerusalem church? Do you remember? From verse 7 in Acts 6, because the seven deacons protected and promoted the peace of the church, because they served and supported the shepherds of the church, because they spotted and met the tangible needs of the church, and because they discharged their ministry with exemplary character, full of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit, the Word of God continued to increase. If your greatest joy as a deacon is to facilitate the fruitful gospel ministry in this church, you will serve well. Your priorities will be right, and God will reward your service. So as you enter into your new role, with its responsibilities and challenges, fix your eyes on Jesus, the greatest deacon of all. 
The, the most mind-blowing thing I can say to you today, Josh, is that your God is a deacon. Your God did not do what any man, every man would do if he were God. He left his glory in heaven and became a human servant. He came to you, not to be served by you, but to serve you by laying his life down for you, by dying for your sins, even death on a cross. Look to Christ then, and remember that thankless, menial, sacrificial service was not below the Lord of glory. And take heart that insofar as you carry out your duties, your diaconal responsibilities, your diaconal calling, with a glad servant's heart, you reflect your Messiah and you image your God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your church. And we revel in your love for us, the bride of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you specifically that you have provided for us. You have given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You have given us the sacraments. And you have given us men, gifts from heaven. Men to serve. Men to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. Help all of us here to become deacons, to become servants in your kingdom. And give Josh a special measure of your grace to lead us by serving us. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.